The scripture this morning is from Genesis chapter 45, verse 16 through chapter 46, 26. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamel. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sarid, Elon, and Jaleel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Arali. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah their sister and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, who Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppim, Huppim, and Ard. 
These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, the son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazeel, Guni, Jazer, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. That was pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I fully expect, what is it? Uh, Muppum, Hupum, and Hushums to, to fill, fill Grace Church in the future. <clears throat> Some of you have plenty of kids. Take a shot. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome to Grace, Grace Church. Once again, we're nearing the end of Genesis. There aren't many passages in the Bible where you can see such a prolonged passage of pleasantness and goodness. And it's just such a sweet passage we're in. The home stretch is remarkably encouraging in no small part because, as we saw two weeks ago, it gives us a glimpse of the kind of restoration that fills the new heavens and the new earth. If you were with us this morning in, in Sunday school, we watched a, a video called The Biggest Story. And one of the things that it says is mankind, Adam and Eve, having sinned, were driven out of the garden. And most of the story is the, of the Bible is God bringing people back to the garden, working to bring ba- people back to the garden. And we get a sweet taste of garden life to a large measure in the end of Genesis. This week is no exception. In it, we find a display of amazing common grace as well as amazing saving grace covenant grace, and the beginning of a a family reunion. The main takeaway, so if you hang on to something, hang hang on to this. The main takeaway, some of you maybe really need to hear this, or maybe you need to hear this to be able to tell this to somebody this week. The main takeaway is that there is no corner of creation so remote or no heart so hard that God's grace can't reach it. Let me say that again. I'm going to say it like seven more times. So if you didn't get it all down this time, you'll, you'll hear it over and over. Here it is. The main takeaway is that there is no corner of creation so remote or no heart so hard that God's grace cannot reach it. Therefore, while God's plan to make all things right in Jesus has all kinds of twists and turns and ups and downs from our perspective, it is certain and awesome. His plan to make all things right in Jesus is certain and awesome. So let's pray. Let's pray that God would help us to see these things and then fill us with the kind of trust and obedience and worship that they warrant. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit to help us understand it. We know that we're born hostile to you. We're born with minds that do not submit to you, and and nor can they do so, your word tells us. We thank you that although we're born in sin with a sinful nature, which causes us to commit sinful acts right away, we thank you that although the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, we we thank you that although the God of this age has blinded us to the 
the light of the glory of God, the face of Christ, that although all those things are true, none of those things are able to stay your hand from breaking forth in light in life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So cause us this morning to hear your word as you mean us to. For those who are not yet trusting in you, if there's anyone in this room who is not now trusting in Christ, I pray that you would cause them to come alive this morning through the preaching and singing and praying of the gospel. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a longer passage that Johanna just read, but the story is pretty simple. And I want to start. There's there's four parts to the sermon, but there's a fifth. And the fifth is, let's just briefly consider the story together. Having revealed his true identity to his brothers after some time of withholding it from them, the Egyptians soon found out about Joseph's family as well. So Joseph revealed to his brothers that he was, in fact, their brother. Uh, they, they couldn't recognize him after so many years and, and probably a pretty thoroughly Egyptian appearance. He revealed himself to them, and the Egyptians that Joseph was living among were amazed as well. Since he had become so important to and favored by the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, Pharaoh insisted that Joseph's whole family be brought to Egypt and that they receive, not, not only would they come, but they would receive the best of all that he and his land had to offer. With all the wealth, power, favor, authority, and the text tells us explicitly the pleasure of Pharaoh upon them, and especially upon Benjamin, Joseph sent his brothers back to Canaan to retrieve their father. He loaded them to the brim with gifts for their father and a, a subtle warning not to fight among themselves along the way. I'll come back to that. As you can imagine, Joseph wasn't exactly sure to make of the, what to make of this news. Just think about this. In, in his mind, his favorite son had been dead for decades. The text says that his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. It is not clear exactly why they might lie about this, but they had a past of lying for sure. And, and so what is clear, though, is that eventually, somehow, they got their father to believe them because he returned to Egypt with them. Jacob and his sons loaded all, just picture this, there's quite a few of them with quite a bit of, quite a large amount of stuff already. They loaded up all of their family and possessions, leaving no one and nothing behind from this land that they had settled in for some time and traveled some distance to a town called Beersheba. There they offered sacrifices to God, the beginning of chapter 46 tells us. We don't know a lot about the nature of the sacrifices that they offered at this time. Not long from here, soon, relatively, sacrifices would be prescribed, specific sacrifices would be prescribed by God, commanded by God, explained by God. There were certain ones that God told them to offer for certain reasons and certain ways, but that wasn't the case yet. So we don't know exactly why, only that it was, or mainly that it was a simple act of devotion. That night, for a third time, a third time, God gave Jacob a dream. The first time you might remember was concerning the ladder that came down from heaven back in chapter 28. The second time was concerning the sheep of his father-in-law, Laban, back in chapter 31. And the third time, this, the one in this passage, was an assurance that God was indeed Jacob's God, that he was behind this miraculous return of Joseph. Indeed, it was a 
It was a comforting covenant reminder. God would be with Jacob in his journey to Egypt and allow him to prosper even more before dying peacefully in the presence of his long-lost son. What's more, God promised in the dream to bring Jacob's clan back to the promised day, promised land one day. They were in Canaan, the land that God had promised. He brought them to Egypt, but one day he would bring them back to this land. Another picture of the garden in a certain way. God would be with Jacob through all of this. They would prosper for a time in Egypt, but that would not be their home. This, this truly was the sweetest of dreams. The section in Genesis then closes with a list of the 70 offspring of Jacob who traveled with him to Egypt. What a family reunion that would be. And yet, while 70 plus people is large for a reunion, you got to remember, this is part of a larger story. And in that larger story, God had promised, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. 70 is a big family reunion, but it's not quite that, is it? As we'll soon see, part of God's plan in reuniting this family in Egypt was to change that and fulfill that in spectacular ways. Well, that's it. That's that's the story. It's fairly simple, although it's remarkable in a lot of ways. It's a pretty simple story. Embedded in it are a few things. And the rest of the sermon is unpacking these few things. Embedded in it are displays of amazing common grace. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Amazing saving grace. Another, again, you you saw this in the dream, another experience of God's beneficent presence. Love that. And the beginning of greater and greater and greater and greater covenant fulfillment all the way to Christ. I love that as well. And in all of that, again, is a reminder that there is no corner of creation so remote, no heart so hard that God's grace can't reach it. So let's let's consider those four big pillars. First, amazing common grace. As a young man, I didn't know it, but I wasn't a Christian. I did not know the gospel, and therefore I did not believe in the gospel. To be clear, I was never hostile to God, and I never disbelieved the teachings that I was aware of from the church or the Bible, but I also know now that I never understood things then enough to believe them, even if I had wanted to. Nevertheless, I distinctly remember being taken advantage of by a friend who figured out that if he made me swear to God, I I wouldn't lie. (laughs) God put in me a healthy fear of attaching his name to a falsehood. Now, I had no problem lying under other circumstances. Uh, that That was pretty easy and natural. But when God's name was invoked, it was different for me. On the other hand, my friend had no such reservations. The time I remember most clearly involved him stealing a tape from me. I had just bought a tape. I couldn't wait to listen to it. Left it in my car. My car unlocked. He went in and stole it so he could make a copy of it. And he swore to God that he didn't. And I trusted him for the last time. The question is that I want you to feel and understand and consider. Why did I feel this unwillingness to sin against a God, against God, even apart from true faith in God? Because I wasn't a Christian, the fear I had of misusing his name wasn't tied to the Holy Spirit's presence in me. It wasn't tied to a specific belief or a specific passage or promise of God in the Bible. It wasn't true conviction. Let me 
Let me broaden this dramatically and then shrink it back down in a little bit. Why didn't God immediately send Adam and Eve to hell? Why doesn't God immediately send every sinner who sins immediately to hell when they sin? A little less dramatic. Why do people who continually rebel against God enjoy meaningful friendships? Why do non-Christians perform acts of sacrificial service through organizations like Doctors Without Borders or the Red Cross? How are those who reject God as God able to contribute to significant things like medical advances or paint beautiful pictures or make excellent music? How is this possible? The answer to these questions from why I feared God apart from truly knowing God to non-Christians making great music is something called common grace. Theologians distinguish between the common and saving grace of God. In simplest terms, so one theologian says it, common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not a part of their salvation. The common here, I'm still quoting, the the word common here means something that is common to all people and is not restricted to believers, Christians, or the elect only. While the term common grace, like the term Trinity, never occurs in the Bible, it is taught throughout. Perhaps the clearest text, the, the, the most explicit text on the matter is in the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5.45, where he declared the Father makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He causes the crops of both to grow. In simplest terms, the common grace of God is the only thing that keeps things from being as bad as they would be if sin were not restrained. I'm going to say this a few different ways and tell you why all this matters. Examples examples of common grace, big and small, are so numerous in the Bible that they're nearly impossible to miss. The two that have always stood out to me the most are the first is when Cyrus, king of Persia, released the Jews, the exiled Jews, to return to Jerusalem and even paid for them to rebuild the temple. That's, that's largely the story of Ezra. And second, the second example of common grace that has always stood out to me the most is the one in our passage for this morning. Stop and consider for just a minute what's really happening here. God's common grace was upon the ruler of Egypt such that he was able to recognize God's blessing in Joseph and trust Joseph to manage his entire kingdom in its most vulnerable state. As if that were not enough, upon hearing the news of Joseph's family, Pharaoh insisted on blessing them in ways that most of us couldn't imagine. Even us Christians couldn't imagine blessing someone else. Look with me again at chapter 45, verse 16. It says, it says this, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take the wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for all or for the best of all the lands of Egypt is yours. Just think about what that means. 
The very fact that the next ruler of Egypt would act in exactly the opposite way toward the Israelites helps us to see helps us to see this for what it is. So what's the what's the modern day equivalent? It really is in many ways akin to you, one of us, one of us being sold into slavery and then into prison in some oil-rich Muslim-led country only to be made second in charge to whoever is in charge. We as Christians being sold into slavery, handed off into prison, and the next thing we know, we're second in charge to this wealthy Muslim-led country. And not only that, but being so favored by the person in charge that they couldn't wait for you to bring anyone you want, all, all of your family, over so that they could use all the resources they had to bless your family. You, you can have whatever house you want. You can have whatever part of the city. All, all of it is, is yours. Just, you have to actually picture what this, it just doesn't work like that. That's the point. Rightly understood, the measure of God's common grace on display here really is shocking. Pharaoh didn't truly trust in God. We, we talked about this in the prayer room a little bit this, this morning. He, all he knew was that Joseph works. <laughs> I don't know exactly how Joseph's, Joseph's saying this is related to his God so great. That's, that's great. If it's a magic eight ball, that's fine too. But for all, all he knew was that Joseph worked. He had the grace of God upon him to know that it worked and to know that it was worth trusting in and it, that it was folly to go against that. How many people in, the history of the world, and even in the history of the Bible, just couldn't get that. They they couldn't understand that. What's the difference? The difference is common grace. God's common grace was on this Pharaoh. That's amazing. Pharaoh didn't truly trust in God. He, he wasn't saved. But for the sake of his covenant people, God poured out his common grace on Pharaoh such that he acted in ways that are impossible to explain apart from from this grace of God. So let me say, let me say a, a really practical word about common grace. This isn't just a, a, a theological pie in the sky idea. On Friday morning, uh, a few guys get together to eat donuts and solve all the world's problems. Uh, I learned that's called talking smart. We, we talk smart. Uh, I like that phrase. Uh, one member of the brain trust wondered aloud, how can so many people in this world be so unreasonable? How can, how can people just not see how silly what they believe and what they're doing and how their thinking is? His simple point was that many people today seem unable to recognize the folly of their ways. Now, we all fall into that boat to some degree, but increasingly the world around us seems unable to see the world as it really is. His simple point, again, was that it's hard, it seems increasingly hard to see the world as God made it. It's a good observation. I think it's a fair observation, and it's a good question. The answer, though, once again, is common grace. Romans 1 makes it clear that when people reject God over time, he sometimes judges them by removing a measure, sometimes a significant measure of his common grace. And therein, a measure of the ability to reason. Where, where does the ability to to think carefully and clearly and, and understand things as they are come from, the common grace of God. So when he removes it, so too leaves our ability to reason, to have a conscience that works properly, that's rightly tuned, and even to be decent humans. 
To be clear, Grace, sin is so deadly and corrosive that apart from some restraining grace of God, the unbelievers of this world would completely stop believing things like life and truth, telling the truth versus telling lies, love versus hatred, generosity and responsibility are good. It is the common grace of God alone that helps unbelievers to understand that life and truth and fidelity and love and generosity and responsibility and any good thing is good. If God were to truly pull his common grace away, bad would be called good and good would be called bad. Well, in case you hadn't noticed, (laughs) in increasing measure, that's exactly what's going on around us. And so as, you know, your resident brain trust, this is what we were trying to work out on Friday morning over Tasty Donuts. Well, in our flesh, this realization often tempts us to anger or despair, doesn't it? Think about this. As you see this going on around you, generally our response unchecked is anger or despair. Certainly that's what many in the media, certainly that's what many TV preachers and others who profit from fear want from us or who could sell us something to overcome the anger or despair. But in the spirit, what do the people of God do? In the spirit, this is simply this, meaning God pulling back however much he is or will still pull back his common grace. In the spirit, this is simply another call for you and I and those who call upon the name of Jesus. This is simply another call to proclaim the gospel and another reminder that the saving grace of God is our only hope. Here's the problem. Too many of you have put your hope in common grace. That comes and goes. It came in massive waves to Joseph right now and his family. But in almost every way and more, it's going to be removed. They're going to be enslaved for hundreds and hundreds of years right after this in the same land. Too many of us are putting our hope in a certain type of common grace. And all of this is a reminder that that is never our hope. It can't bear our hope. This isn't anything new, what's happening today even if we're experiencing it on some new levels for us. And it isn't even, Grace, more dangerous for anything that actually matters. In fact, and you got to get this, we, we have to settle on this. The removal of common grace, when God pulls it back to some degree, all that it's doing is revealing what's always the case, but sometimes harder to see. And that's this, that sin is always heinously deadly and corrosive. That's always the case, even if common grace covers its effects sometimes. So as things, perhaps, get worse for us, the Bible's call is not for us to yell at the clouds, to become crippled by fear, or to head for the hills. That's not what the Bible calls us to do. It is, rather, to thank God for making our inheritance secure, regardless of the state of the world in Jesus Christ. And then to proclaim even louder the only good news that can pierce this present darkness. Our hope is not in the amount of common, in the amount of common grace that God has chosen to bestow upon the world around us. Indeed, again, in a relatively short amount of time, the surprising lack of common grace that Joseph's clan would experience surpasses the shocking amount of common grace he receives in this passage. If his hope was in that, he'd be in trouble. 
If his hope was in God, it wouldn't be rattled. So again, remember grace. Our hope is not in common grace at all. Our only hope is in God's saving grace. And this passage helps us to see that there is no corner of creation so remote and no heart so hard that God's grace cannot reach it. That leads us to the next section. Briefly, I want to point something out from 45, chapter 45, 24 to 28. I want to do so because it teaches us two powerful lessons and leaves us with one even more powerful implication. What do I want you to see? Twice, maybe you notice this, twice in these few verses, 45, 24 to 28, twice the integrity of Joseph's brothers is questioned. Twice. It seems that these men who had been tested over and over again and been found faithful over and over again, granted after a season of being pretty horrific humans, but but they had been tested over and over again and been found faithful over and over again, were not yet above suspicion. What do I mean by that? In the first instance, Joseph felt the need, blessing upon blessing. Pharaoh is pouring out all of his stuff on them to go back and get their father, and he's telling them what, what awaits them as they return. And Joseph felt compelled, 45-24, he said to his brothers, don't, don't quarrel on the way. It's, you think, why is that in there? That's just a weird little clause to put in there. Don't quarrel on the way. Similarly, just a few verses later, when the brothers finally got home to tell their father, what, what does it say his initial reaction was? I read it earlier. It says he, he, he felt a kind of numbness. And then it says at first he didn't believe them. So two lessons, one even greater implication. Here's the first lesson. Even after true repentance. Now, I, I need you to think of your own sin a sin that you have committed that has hurt someone else, or maybe it's the sin that someone else has committed that has hurt you, draw draw a real version of that to mind. The first lesson is that even after true repentance, which by all accounts to this point, it seems that the brothers had, even after true repentance, the consequences of sin can linger. There's something really significant for you and I in that. When you sin, When you sin, we all sin. When you do, confess your sin to God and to whomever you've sinned against. Turn from it in faith back to righteousness. Know that your sins are immediately and fully forgiven by God in Christ. And then be patient as the sting wears off for those you harmed in your sin. Be patient. And if you've been painfully sinned against, remember the unqualified and undeserved forgiveness of God on that person who sinned against you and hurt you, and and do that as you plan your next steps. Whatever comes next for you, remember the (laughs) undeserving and unqualified forgiveness of God on them already in Jesus Christ. The second lesson is this. We will not be fully sanctified until we die. Joseph's brother's repentance really seemed genuine, and yet that's not the same as saying that from that point on they were truly sinless. By God's design, you and I will continue to battle sin until we die, and so let's make war on our sin. Let's fight the sin as it's in us, as it rears its head in the power of the cross. Let's do that. Let's make war, as Paul says, on our sin. Let's mortify it. But at the same time, let's remember that we are only acceptable to God 
on account of Jesus' righteousness, not our own. Pursue righteousness in the ways that God has called you to, in the power that God gives you. But do so without ever forgetting that your acceptability to God is only on account of Jesus' righteousness. And all that leads to a familiar, powerful implication. Grace and these hints of, we don't, we don't know whether they had good reason at this point or if they're just, the, Joseph and his dad were remembering the past actions of his brothers and his sons. We don't know exactly why they were skeptical or had a hint of, of skepticism, but these hints of faithlessness or lingering effects of past sin in them were reminded a second time that our only hope is the grace of God. But this passage again helps us to see that there is no corner of creation or heart so hard, no corner of creation so remote or heart so hard that God's grace cannot reach it. Well, almost immediately after this, after Jacob agreed to go with his sons to Egypt, we're confronted with a third reminder of the amazing grace of God. As he had several times before, we heard about this earlier, God visited Jacob in a dream. And once again, we can't understand this passage rightly if you don't put yourself in Jacob's shoes. Just picture what he had been through for the last several decades. He had long mourned the death of his favorite son. He had long lamented the faithlessness of his other sons, whom he probably suspected of the death of Joseph. Seemingly on a dime, just like that. There's this current, this, this, there's this trajectory of mourning and frustration with these other sons. Seemingly on a dime, Jacob's sons turned toward faithfulness. That, that had to have been joyful, but also disorienting for Jacob. His lost son, just like that, returned from the dead. And now he was headed to a, a pagan land with all that he had for a reunion and a blessing that was remarkable. If there ever was a time to wonder, God, what are you doing? <laughs> is this your doing? Is this you? Are you really in this? Is, is this really your will that I go and move everything and everyone around like this? Would you please help me to know that you are with me right now and this is a part of your covenant promise? If ever there was a time to wonder those things, this is it. And in another expression of unimaginable grace, God answered every one of those questions and more by showing up. Look at again, the beginning of 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And here it is. And God spoke to Israel, to Jacob, in visions of the night, dreams, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. What, what awesome Awesome words. Everything seemed strange and in and, and turmoil and uncertain. And God shows up. Here I am, Jacob said. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Remember the dust of the earth that I said your kids would be like and the riches that would be yours. Remember the stars in the heavens. That's how many kids you'll have. It's going to kick in. <laughs> it's going to kick in in amazing ways in Egypt. I'm with you. I will be there and I will bless you. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. That's awesome. 
How many times have you longed for something so confirming and comforting from God? Any of you who have given yourselves to be about the purposes and mission of God, any of you who have given yourselves to living as God has made you to live and for the reasons God has made you alive, any of you who have ever truly given yourself to that have longed for this kind of an experience with God. How many times in a season of uncertainty would you have loved to experience such clear and sweet fellowship with the Father? No one but God could have orchestrated a series of events quite like this, and no one but God could have brought such blessed assurance in this trial. Grace, hear this. No matter what you're going through, no matter how confusing, or overwhelming, desperate, or painful things seem, or are, remember, there is no pit of loneliness or pain or sickness or sorrow or loss so deep that God cannot reach you in it and redeem the very thing that is causing so much hurt. Truly, wonderfully, mercifully, there is no corner of creation so remote, no heart so hard, no season of life so challenging that God's grace can't reach it. Such is the power of the cross and the empty grave. Amen. Finally then, the passage ends with this description of all who traveled from Canaan to Egypt with Jacob. If you're like me, you tend to tune out when you get to the stories of people's lineage. Kids, how many of you just, you know, on the wall have have one of the Bible's genealogies written out because it just inspires you. You know, you probably have an ark, which is weird too, because everybody dies, but, <clears throat> but, but you probably don't have a genealogy unless you're a big Andrew Peterson fan, maybe, or Matthew's begats. But, but if you're anything like me, you tend to tune out whenever you get to a, a genealogy like this. I remember when I first started reading the Bible, I actually love it because it meant I could just skip that whole section and check off my Bible reading for the day. <clears throat> don't do that. Uh, but, but here's the thing. While you don't need to memorize every name or the pronunciation, uh, like, like Johanna apparently did, either that or you just said it with confidence. I'm not sure with a few of them, but you don't need to memorize every name or, or every pronunciation or every family connection, which was Rachel's and which was Leah's and which were their servants. And you don't necessarily need to memorize any or all of that, but you can't miss You can't miss what this represents. Many years earlier, God had made a promise, which I read, to Jacob's grandfather. The 70 names of the otherwise boring genealogy represent the germination of the seed of the promise. The the flower's not there yet. There's barely a plant. But what, what we have here is the germination of the seed of the promise. Something is changing and sprouting and growing. God is always faithful, but these 70 people headed to the place they were heading in the way they were heading there was part of the down payment and the fulfillment, the full fulfillment to this promise. Even as there is no promise that God will not keep in his perfect timing, even as there is no promise God will, that God has made that he will not keep in his per- perfect timing, For the greatest good of his people, even as that's the case, we will endure hardship. The timing is his and not ours. And so, Grace Church, for the fourth and final time this morning, remember, there is no corner of creation so remote, 
or heart so hard that God's grace cannot reach it. And so in, in conclusion, all of the promises of God are yes for us. They were for them and they are for us. And we know now in a way they couldn't have exactly why and how. All of the promises of God are yes for us by grace alone, through faith alone, which they got. But, but we get one that they couldn't through Jesus Christ alone. Would you look to him this morning? Whether for the first time or maybe for the first time in a while or maybe for the 50th time today already, would you look to Jesus in faithful surrender that you might know, you might truly know the one who made you, what you were made for, and the salvation that can only come from the crucified and risen Lord. To him be all glory throughout all generations forever and ever.